This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Exvangelical. My guest this week is Jamie Lee Finch. She is a sexuality and embodiment coach and the author of the new book, You Are Your Own, a reckoning with the with excuse me, a reckoning with the religious trauma of evangelical Christianity. Welcome back to the show, Jamie. Hi, thank you. I just got so excited because I've never heard someone call me an author before. <laughs> hey, congratulations. <laughs> author of the new book. Wow. Oh, my God. I just got so excited. <laughs> oh, it's real. It happened. I did. Oh, no, this dog. Uh, I knew that's real, it. too. Okay. That's, yes, it is. Well, maybe we just real. got one no, bark. He's excited. He's as excited as right. I am about me being an author. That's awesome. Well, I've actually had you on the show once before and we we explored your story in detail there, but I'd love to sort of start the conversation just hearing a bit about your uh, journey from evangelicalism, from youth all the way to leaving that and sort of what led you to become an embodiment coach and then we'll explore Mm -hmm. that more in detail as well. Yeah, sure. So, um... I'm still like in my feels about the author thing. It feels so cool. That's like, apart from being an archaeologist, that was what I wanted to be when I was a kid. I think I've mostly <laughs> let the archaeologist thing go because I figured out it's like more you're hanging out in a museum and less like Indiana Jones. <laughs> right. So at least I got halfway to my dream. Um, I think maybe what I actually wanted when I was like a kid, but didn't have the language for it at the time, which would make sense in light of what I do now is like, I wanted to be an author, but I wanted to fuck Indiana Jones. That's actually (laughs) what I wanted. I didn't want to do his job. I wanted to do him anyway. Okay. So, um, yes. So I grew up in the evangelical tradition. Um, my first kind of the, the family, this, the landscape that I was born into originally was Southern Baptist. Um, and that's something I kind of, in my, in my book, I, I anchor kind of, Hey, this is where I landed. I dropped in here at this point. Um, but even though that's where I kind of dropped in and what was, what I was first introduced to, I made my way through all different sorts and kinds and expressions of evangelical Christianity over the next, you know, 20 plus years, mm-hmm. um, from that point. And, so, I mean, I spent, spent some time around in my teenage years, I started going, my, I went to a non-denominational, you know, air quotes, Christian school. Right. Um, and one year in a Presbyterian Christian school, actually. And so I, I kind of thought what's funny is I kind of followed with that. So like a lot of my friends in the non-denominational Christian school went to a non-denominational church. So I kind of went, hung out at their church. Similarly, the year I was at the Presbyterian school, I was like, well, let's try a Presbyterian church. And so I dipped my toes in, in those, um, most of high school when the Southern Baptist church pseudo kind of kicked me out was, which is its own kind of weird, fun story. Um, I was like, cool, I'll just hang out at the non-denominational one, hung out there for a bit, occasionally went with my mother to an e-free, which believe it or not is different than non-denominational, even though they feel like they're the same. Um, that's like, yeah, evangelical free, yeah. which I'm like free of evangelicalism. <laughs> no, it's not. There's plenty I of it there. I think that's Swedish covenant um, <laughs> is like the official one of the names I think for that denomination. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. I did not know they that. They have a presence here in Chicago. Um, that's sort of how I know that. Like uh, North, North Park University is a Swedish okay. covenant school, et cetera, et cetera. 
Anyways, you can mm. go down a you know denomina- denominational history oh, thing, but there's so many. There's so yeah. many. Um, yeah, and so spent some time in those. I I spent a little bit of time in the Catholic Church after high school, um, but then when I was living in Africa with a with a missions organization, because right after high school, right after I graduated, I was immediately in mission work. Um, and that was again kind of a quote non denominational, but there were folks from all over the world. So I was introduced to like all different versions and brands of evangelical Christianity as it has colonized all these different places all over the mm-hmm. world. And, um, and then came back from that and hung out in, um, an Acts 29 expression for a bit, moved to New York, joined a Presbyterian church up there, which was like a branch off of your, your favorite person today, Tim Keller's <laughs> church. Woo-hoo. Um, woo. And then <laughs> went back to Acts 29 for a little bit. And then I think what makes sense to me now is like the language of the Acts 29 environment of like, you are so fucking bad was like, just, it was too much that like, I think my body just, just couldn't handle it anymore. And so I hard pendulum swung over to the charismatic world mm where it was like, no, you're so great. But they kind of bury the lead or they're like, well, you're only great because Jesus, but at least they tell you you're great. Um, and so I hung out there for a bit, went to, a, a charismatic Christian ministry school. That's a lot like Bethel. Um, I went to one here in Tennessee and then I moved to England and joined, um, a cult accidentally. Cause I don't know if anybody joins one on purpose. Maybe they do. I don't know, <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> was there for a little bit. Um, it was a, it was a, an outgrowth of IHOP, the International House of Prayer. Um, and then when I came back from that, I, I mean, God, I was very, I was pretty deeply damaged at that point, not just from, not just from the cult, but from like everything else I just mentioned, all these other expressions and all these other attempts and truly what propelled me forward into, into and out of every expression was this deep feeling that like, this isn't it. Like yeah. everything that I've been told about this feeling that's supposed to arrive, it just never arrived. And so every time you turn around, there's a new church or group or denomination that's like, oh, well, of course it's not there because they're wrong. They don't have God like we have God. So come over here and you can get God. And so every couple of years, that's what I did until finally <clears throat> my body was literally breaking down. <clears throat> and when I came back from from England after a few months and was just, I mean, intense amounts of self-harm, disordered eating, which had plagued me for about 15 years anyway. And so I had the self-harm. Um, <clears throat> I finally, I mean, that became literally debilitating. Like I couldn't, I was at a point where I was like, it was hard to leave the house where I was living in. Um, and then panic attacks started happening, um, whenever I would be inside of a church building. And I just got to a point where I was like, I have to stop because I, I don't know what's going on, but I do know I literally am wasting my time driving an hour and a half round trip to this church in Nashville only to be inside of the building for a minute at a time because I'm having a panic attack. So just practically I need to stop wasting my time. And also I should probably figure out what, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then pretty quickly after that, um, and that actually was around the same time that I enrolled in the program to get my coaching certification. And so now I'm like, Oh, how interesting how that lined up. And it was very much a lifeline for me. Um, and so I left church around the time that I was exploring these areas of coaching and getting really in touch. It was, it was more health coaching at the time. So I was getting in touch with my literal physical body. Um, which again, makes sense to me now 
thinking about that that's what was going on then because after giving myself the permission to stop showing up every Sunday for the first time in my life, mm-hmm. within six weeks to two months, I was like, I'm done. It was fast. Like it was rapid. And, um, so I was diving in and studying all this stuff and then also just trying to heal and, um, got my coaching certification, um, around, like I graduated from that program or was certified from that program, um, about a year later. Um, and then started and midway through my, my certification, I started like dabbling with taking some clients and, tried my hand at it. I was actually a pretty shitty health coach, which makes sense to me now because I'm really good at the type of coaching I now do and the niche that I do it in. So for a bit there, it just like wasn't working. And so I was like, all right, maybe this was a fluke, but I'm at the very least, I'm going to go back to school. Um, and so I went back to school, um, in my late twenties, found myself at this school in Vermont called Goddard college, which is an absolutely incredible institution. Um, in fact, we're trying to raise a bunch of money for it now to save it, um, and from some financial difficulties it's encountered. Um, and I'll say probably a bit more about that at the end about, um, what I'm doing with my ebook and, and audiobook as far as donating some proceeds to Goddard. But, um, yeah, so I got to Goddard and had the permission to really start kind of like exploring what I wanted to study. And right on the surface of what I wanted to study was like me kind of, and I was like, what the hell happened to me? <laughs> like what happened to me during this whole time? Mm-hmm. So the very first paper I ever wrote when I went back to school was a paper, um, exploring the connection between purity culture and autoimmune disease and gastrointestinal issues in the female body. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I was like, this exists. I know it exists. I kept seeing it in my clients. It, it existed in me. Um, and if you Google that, nothing turns up because nobody's asking this question. So I just want to see what I can find. And you can do that at Goddard, which is great. So that just launched me down this path of like, all right, here I am. This is what I'm studying. And that ended up culminating in what I decided to do for my senior study project for that thesis, um, which eventually shaped itself to be very specifically focused into the phenomenon of religious trauma syndrome and how the manifestation of these psychologically and behaviorally maladaptive things that we are taught as children and adolescents inside of white evangelical Christianity, how those things end up affecting the way our brains develop and the way our bodies respond. Um, And then through kind of diagnosing that issue and calling a spade a spade and saying that it's trauma and saying that it's abuse, um, kind of offering some initial very surface level kind of insight into avenues of healing for people. I mean, I was at a, a t- I was, I was dealing with a time restriction and a length restriction, so I couldn't go super mm-hmm. deep into anything, but, um, definitely hinging on that key of embodiment, um, and, and really rooting into embodiment is the key to coming home and to healing from all of this. And, and that is, that is the cornerstone of, of the coaching work that I do now as well. That's all really fascinating. I, I want to take what, one of the things you mentioned there at, at the end of that and start to define a little bit of those, those terms. The, one of the things you mentioned, uh, and one of the things we're going to talk about a lot is embodiment. But before we get to that, um, because embodiment is really at the core of, the, of your book and, and much of your work. Um, but before we, we get to that, I want to contextualize a little bit of what um, the definition of religious trauma syndrome is. Um, it's probably something that a lot of our, my listeners are aware of, because I mean, yeah. it's very much 
uh, one of the things you talk about in your book is the the power of storytelling, and that's this entire project. Basically, you know, it's yes. it's yeah. it's very much what this what this project is is making something publicly available that someone can find resources of just people's stories that resonate with mm-hmm. them. That's at the yeah. heart of what what Exvangelical this podcast is, what the Facebook group is. Yep. Totally. With that in mind, I would. If we could provide a definition for our conversation of what mm-hmm. religious trauma syndrome is, and then I really want to start there and then talk about how the different practices and beliefs within evangelicalism feed into these manifestations of stress and trauma in the body. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so religious trauma syndrome, um, or you can just kind of, you know, abbreviate to RTS, um, it's a it's a relatively new, uh, well, and I say new very gently because Marlene Winnell, this um, psychologist who coined the term, she wrote uh, her book introducing that terminology called Leaving the Fold. Mm-hmm. She wrote that book in 1993, or published it in 1993. <laughs> so I was like, I was five years old when that book came <laughs> out. This has been around. And which ironically, it's the same year that Dr. Wendell Waters, a psychologist, a Canadian psychologist, published his book, Deadly Doctrine. And so I was like, how fascinating. This has been, this is ha- hanging out for like 25 years before I realized it existed, right. you know, um, <clears throat> which is really cool having these people that paved the way. But um so RTS is, um, it's a condition experienced by people who are struggling with leaving, um, an authoritarian or dogmatic religion and coping with the, the fallout of that damage of, of indoctrination. Um, and that word indoctrination, I do feel is really key because when people finally feel comfortable to, to diagnose or receive a diagnosis that like what happened to them is that they were indoctrinated, which is a very very fair word to use. If you really talk to someone who, I don't know about you, but definitely me had these bizarre experiences with being taught very, very specific things in childhood Mm -hmm. that are haunting, um, and given no option of any other manner of belief that is indoctrination. Um, and while the term itself doesn't necessarily exclusively apply to just evangelical Christianity, that was Dr. Winnell's personal experience being raised by actually fundamentalist Christian missionary parents, which this is really fascinating. I hope I'm not like outing something and saying this, but this is so fascinating. I feel like it um, helps to anchor like her credibility, but I don't know if you've heard of Iris Ministries. Um, It's Heidi Baker, Roland Baker. Um, That doesn't ring any bells right now, but I may have come across them before. It's a massive missions organization and they, you know, they, they predominantly work in like Mozambique, but they've got, I mean, there's an Iris Nashville. Well, I mean, they changed their name to legacy because of course they did, but, um, (laughs) they all changed their names all over. They always do. And it's always something really fucking dumb, like legacy or belonging or or, I mean, or just going by some acronym that technically means nothing. Oh my God. That's the worst. (laughs) Well, and then there's Grace Center, which is the one I went to, which I'm just like, how did I not know this shit was a cult? Like, come on, Grace Center? Uh, anyway, <laughs> so so Dr. Winnell, Marlene Winnell, she, um, Roland Baker, Heidi and Roland, who, you know, started Iris and all of this, she is Roland's sister. So they were raised in the same, it, like from the same time. And, and apparently she's like one of the only people in her family who is like, 
totally left. Mm. Um, so she's definitely got a lot <laughs> of firsthand experience. So RTS is a function of both the, the chronic abuses of harmful religion itself and also the impact of what happens to you um, when you sever your connection with your faith. So Mm -hmm. it can actually be very easily compared to, um, some sort of combination, any kind of combination between PTSD or, uh, complex or CPTSD. Um, and that's what makes it a little bit difficult. Um, as Wendell Waters points out in his work, um, oftentimes the only reason why, why psychologists or therapists will ask questions or want to learn about the religious background of an individual is just to kind of anchor their experience. There's never really been much of a consideration that their religious background or what they grew up believing or what they currently believe could actually be informing right. uh, what what's going on with them. And so that's what makes RTS so vital, but sometimes so kind of slippery to grab hold of is that it, it, it very much mimics and, and resembles um, the manifestations of of not just, I mean, CPTSD is hard to nail down enough on its own. If you read the body keeps the score, you know, that's been a struggle for years, but, but it, RTS and, and CPTSD can, um, oftentimes be mistaken for other d- disorders, um, which are much more easily, um, medicated. We'll say that, um, such as anxiety, depression, bipolar, OCD, BPD, eating disorders, sexual dysfunction, substance abuse, or various antisocial behaviors. So it's really, really important for people to know that this exists, that this terminology exists, that it is rooted in trauma. It's really important for people to understand what trauma is, the fact that it is inherently subjective, which we might you know, be able to get into. But there's a lot of freedom knowing that this term exists it has everything to do with post-traumatic stress disorder and has everything to do with the way that your brain and body responded to the things that you were taught to believe. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually <laughs> this would be a good opportunity, I think also to discuss how like within the context of, um, within the context of religious upbringing, whether that's through sort of domestic events or things you might be taught in Sunday school, how some of those things mm-hmm. can be traumatic for a developing mind, for a young person, mm-hmm. for an adolescent, um, and for, yeah. for young adults. And this isn't something that's only happens to children. I mean, people are yep. traumatized their entire life. Um, but right. it is one of the ways in which you tell you write your book is that you include your story, which involves your own development as a child mm-hmm. and as an adolescent. Um, so with what you've just said in regards to trauma being subjective, let's, mm-hmm. let's talk about how, how that can, come about in religious or specifically evangelical circumstances? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And see, that's a big one where, and I think even recently I just saw in the ex-evangelical, maybe it was that group or another Facebook group where someone was like, I have friends who were taught the same thing as me growing up and they seem fine. Like, what the hell? Like, is that possible? (laughs) And yeah. And my brother and I have actually even talked about this, which is really interesting is because, um, we were raised. And so, and although, I mean, our experiences were slightly different cause he's eight years older than me. And so we weren't his, his kind of formative years were not really as mired in it as mine mm. were. And when I say formative, I mean like your subconscious forming between ages zero and seven. Um, and then even from that point, and, and so partially maybe because of that, the things he was taught later didn't quite stick as much. Um, he was always kind of naturally more, well, what maybe 
my parents, well, what they definitely did call rebellious. Um, but that just meant he was curious about other shit. And so, and he wasn't like as inherently afraid of stuff as I kind of became. Mm So when we've talked about it recently in the last like year or two, as I've been working on this, he's like, almost like he's almost asked in like one way or another, like, is it fine that I'm fine? Like, am I actually fine? Like, cause I'm concerned that maybe I'm not actually fine. And I just think that I'm fine. I'm like, no, you're probably fine. <laughs> like, if you really, think you're right. fine. I think this language of like understanding trauma and understanding the subjective nature of trauma and understanding religious trauma syndrome. And that language is really helpful for people who have this almost innate sense of like, like what, what's going on with me? Or like, I don't know how to explain, or maybe, or, you know, it could be easy to pinpoint if they have those other things going on. Like I listed before, like anxiety, depression, OCD, BPD, eating disorders, all of that. Mm. And my brother didn't really have any of that. And I was like, if you think you're fine, if you feel you're fine, you're probably okay. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean that everything that we're talking about, about this being traumatizing isn't real. Um, because one person can be, taught or told that a place like hell of eternal conscious punishment exists and they can immediately become super fucking scared about that new reality that's been introduced to them and their whole world can suddenly feel incredibly unsafe to them because they just heard that this is a thing Mm -hmm. or someone can be taught hey you at your core as a person um sorry that up up until two minutes ago, you thought you were good or at the very least neutral. Actually, I'm here to tell you that you at your core are bad. You're evil and that's inescapable. There's nothing you can do about it. So suddenly for that person that could be internalized as, oh my God, I'm not even safe with me. I'm not okay. I'm not safe. And so my world again, once again is unsafe because well, if I'm evil, everyone else is evil. So that means they're not safe. So the way in which you internalize, Mm -hmm. whether as a child, adolescent or beyond the way in which you internalize what you're being taught about these new, you know, these quote realities of the world and of God and of other people and of, you know, eternity, um, that is what makes all the difference. What, what qualifies trauma is not what happened or, you know, the intensity of what exactly specifically happened. It's how you experienced what happened. So what technically qualifies trauma is whether or not, um, is two R's, uh, response and, and resolution. So whether or not, so what your response was to it. So those, um, fight, flight, freeze. So again, if you're taught these like really kind of scary sounding theological doctrines, um, if you can't fight back and if you can't get away from it, um, that freeze response is very often going to be initiated, which is definitely what I encountered, what happened to me, where you're like, okay, uh, there's nowhere for me. And this is usually not conscious, but it's like, there's nowhere for me to go. Mm -hmm. There's nowhere for me to hide. If you do feel threatened by what you just learned and you do engage that freeze response, there are things that are happening in your brain. And I go into it in the book. There are things that are happening in your brain with your, um, ANS and your SNS and the parasympathetic nervous system and all of this. So these things start firing and happening. It's a biologically predetermined thing. Um, And then next, if the way you responded was that freeze response, the second thing resolution, if you actually can't reestablish a sense of safety in your body. So again, let's use the hell analogy. If you're introduced the concept of hell, that it exists, people are going there. You might go there. There's not really anywhere for you to run or hide from that idea because you're taught it just exists, whether you like it or not, or as Francis Chan wrote, so lovely in his book that whether you like it or not, your grandma might go there and you just have to (laughs) believe that it's for God's glory. Some fucking how, um, 
there's no, you can't get away from that. So that spike and that fear and that anxiety and that, that scrupulosity and that control or whatever it is that happened in your body when you learned it was there and that you're kind of reminded of, or that happens again, every time you're reminded of, you really, you can't get away from it. You can't get away from God murdering his own son on a cross. You're just taught it happened and there's nothing you could do. And actually it was your fault. You can't get away from this idea you can't just shut off a part of your brain that tells you, or that, that, you know, that's on loop. That's telling you over and over that your body can't be trusted, that your flesh is bad, that you are sinful. You can't get away from these things. So that resolution that is needed to recover from a trauma response from, um, so post-traumatic stress, like symptoms occur often, but it moves into disorder when you actually can't seek that sense of safety once again in your body. So this is all happening or at the very least has the potential to happen to people that are raised to believe these things that are once again are psychologically and behaviorally maladaptive. So will it happen to everybody? Not necessarily, but it is very, it's a very, very, very high likelihood that there is a link between that reality and what's happening. There's a, there's a very high likelihood. There's a link between that information and what you're noticing occurring in your psychology and in your physiology, if you're noticing that things are happening. So at the very least, that's a helpful place for evangelicals, former evangelicals to start in recognizing, oh shit, this might be a manifestation of trauma. Mm. So it doesn't necessarily, not every person is going to come out of evangelical, evangelicalism traumatized, but that doesn't mean that the doctrine isn't traumatizing. Right. Yeah. And I I really appreciated what you said, and it really stuck out to me when you said that it depends on how you internalize it. Because I think for maybe maybe for some people, they either you know they they're the folks or the kids that are in in church and just tune out or whatever, or they just oh this is bullshit I don't believe this or whatever. Yeah. And then really? they don't internalize it, but it's actually, uh, you know, it's actually the the people in the pews and the kids in the pews that are that are taking it seriously. That like, um, yeah. you know, yes. and that's to me, that's <laughs> that's the sort of thing that that drives me crazy about the way some people speak to mm-hmm. former evangelicals and ex-evangelicals mm-hmm. and whether they use that term or not that are telling yeah. these stories now online and yep. elsewhere and through books. When people say we're saying we were just never actually committed, yeah, or like, or like, what's the big deal? I, I was fine, you know, like, yeah, um, but it's yeah. actually, it's like maybe you were that person that just showed up willy nilly every Sunday because you were required to, but I served on every team, I sang every song with all of the fervency in the world, like. I decided at a young age I was going to be a missionary and then I goddamn did the thing. I gave the 10 years of my life after graduating high school to that thing. So like, that's cool that you were okay. <laughs> right. But number one, that doesn't negate my experience. This is what, pe- this is why we need more. We need, we desperately need and under, for so many reasons, but this one included, we have to, people need a greater education on the subjective, the subjectivity of trauma. Mm. Like you can't, you can't objectively, I was having a conversation about this with some people the other day. My, my partner, one of his friends, um, was actually in the shooting in Las Vegas Mm. and he and his his now partner, that's actually where they met. It's crazy. He saved her life. And like, then they, yeah, it's not, um, yeah. Right. I was like enraptured listening to their story. And he was saying how, um, he was talking about how it was fascinating watching how everybody was responding uh, when when the traumatic moment occurred, where there were some people that just took off running. There were some people that were helping other people. He's like, my body just started 
helping. Like, it's just what happens. Like I just, I just protected people. He was like, I grabbed her hand. That's how we met. She was right next to him. He grabbed her hand and them together. Like they both kind of respond in the same way. They started helping people over a fence and there, and some people just froze and they were on the ground. And, and as we were talking more about it, um, my, my partner had this response where he, you know, as far as, you know, the people who just kind of took off running versus the people who started helping, he was like, how could you do that? Like, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you help? And, and this guy, you know, he's been through obviously a lot of trauma therapy. Now he's like, you can't control it. You cannot plan for what your response to trauma is going to be. There's no way to know. And so you, so in light of that, there is no way for any human person to say, well, I responded to trauma this way. You should have responded to trauma this way. It's not number one, that's not possible. And number two, that's just not rooted in science. So it would be helpful for us all to understand that not only is trauma subjective and how we experience what happens and that, you know, our experience of an event gets to qualify whether or not it was traumatizing, not the intensity of the event itself, but then also our responses are going to be very, very different from each individual person to another. Wow, that's really, really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Mm. I want to get back to your book a bit and um, sort of tie back into you using your own story to develop and address this issue of embodiment and trauma Mm -hmm. uh, and as it ties to evangelical belief. One of the things Mm -hmm. you say when you're in the section talking about your story is that by the time I was a teenager, not only was I terrified of the world around me, but I was also terrified of myself moving in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd, if you could just just talk a little bit about that and how you um, got to that point and what it was like existing in that space. Mm, yeah. You know, I was reading, um, I did about half of this for the audiobook yesterday, um, like last night, and I actually remember the way it felt when I was reading that part out again and like that exact moment where I was like, the world was scary and like I was scary in the world. Um and I, I'm glad we didn't power through and try and do the whole audiobook last night because I also think that's another reason why I was like really feeling really sensitive today, mm-hmm. is because reliving that and rehashing that it was like, man, like every time I'm like, God, this was so damaging, um, because for me, it, you know, one of the worst things that that belief system did to me was not only teach me incorrectly that, you know other quote, the other is unsafe or the secular world is unsafe or just the world in general is unsafe. But it also taught me that I am unsafe even unto my own self. And a lot of that was rooted in the severity of the things I was taught as far as your flesh is sinful and bad. Um, I was, and I say this in the book, I was literally taught, and I have such a vivid memory of like where I was and everything when I first heard this, but I was taught and I know so many other people I speak to were taught this too, but that the term self-esteem, that we were taught that it was sinful to develop self-esteem because you would be obviously like valuing yourself over God. And so you needed to develop God esteem, which is a laughable term. Um, but so literally it's like, that's what you need to have instead. And so what's happening when you're taught things like that and how your flesh is sinful or the, you know, another big one being like, um, around, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old when I'm, um, 
I'm going through puberty and I'm waking up to my own body and my own sexuality, you're taught all these messages about how, well, not only is your body just bad and sinful anyway, but like the worst thing you could do with it is do anything sexual with it before you find yourself in a heterosexual monogamous marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is, is that I'm like 11. So that's a little far off. Um, <laughs> right. so now what, you know, yeah. so, um, the, the thing that's really damaging about all of this, not only does it suppress those kind of natural and, and pathologizes those like natural biological developmental stages, but it also takes the, the reason why I felt so unsafe to me is because it, it introduces dichotomy of like everything in you bad, everything external of you that is God good. And so there was nothing in me that I was allowed to kind of classify as good or experience as good. And everything I needed was somewhere else. Like everything I needed to make myself good or better or holy or right was outside of my own body. And one of the things that I've, I've come to like in the last couple of years of not just doing studying trauma and researching trauma and writing this book, but also going through really good trauma therapy on my own is that what helps you heal from trauma, um, is the thing that you, that we all needed, but a lot of us didn't get, which is like the ability to kind of, I mean, I'm going to really, really oversimplify, but to like be the hero of our own story, to recognize that what you need is already inside of you. Mm. And when this entire religious system is set up to tell you everything that you already have inside of you, like cannot be trusted, you need to kill it. You need to get rid of it. You need to beat it into submission. You need to be violent with it and make it go away. Because the the reason why Jesus, like God had to murder Jesus and Jesus had to die is because you have all that gross shit in you and everything that you can identify as being good about you is not only outside of you, but you have to keep coming back to it in order to be well. Like that, I cannot describe to you, like the way it feels in my body to say that now, having the knowledge that I have about trauma, like both again, academically and personally, like when I say that out loud now, the way it feels in my body is as if I'm supposed to be going down like this one certain path and someone literally just turned me around and I'm, I'm going the other way. Mm. Like that's exactly opposite of what every single one of us needs to live and move and thrive in, in the world. Um, and so that I, I have language for it now, but all I knew then was the way I, you know, attempted to kind of describe it when I go into my story in the book, which is like, all I really knew is that I felt so unsafe in the world. Like, major, major panic, major anxiety over tiny things. Like, and I I was just talking with my therapist about this on, on Saturday, even just a few days ago. And I was like, dude, you got to understand like some of the ways in which it's manifested. One thing I can remember is when I was 14 years old. So I sang and that was a whole thing. Cause I was like, well, I can sing. So you sing worship and all that. And, um, people loved it. It was great. It was fine. But you know, they, I can't, I'm not allowed to love it too much. And I, you know, I did the whole thing after I would sing in a service and people were like, that'd be great. You'd have to be like, it's all Jesus or like, God did it. I don't fuck it. Like something like that. So anyway, my, my uncle is a musician. I went down to Texas, um, to do like a little bit of recording with him, like kind of for fun, but also like, um, as the fun fact, I, recorded the, if anybody that's listening to this cares about anime, like this might be interesting, but I recorded the, the theme song in English 
for um, Full Metal Alchemist. Oh, no way. That anime. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> and at the very last minute, Cartoon Network, when it was like, when it was coming to the States, when like they were going to show it in the States. Mm-hmm. And the very last network, um, the Japanese creators of the show, like literally last minute decided, hey, actually, we don't want an English version of the song after all. So I still got paid $300 <laughs> because they picked my version of it, but it never aired. But I have it if anyone ever wants to listen to it. <laughs> That's but, cool. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it, that went over really well. And my uncle and I just kind of like played around. And I we had this cover of this like Linda Ronstadt song that I sang. And it was really fun. And then he took me in, um, like one of the other days we went into this, um, this company that did like recorded jingles. And I sang this jingle for like, um, tourism in Bozeman, Montana. Like it was really, but again, everyone was like, you're good at this. This is great. You've got a great voice. And I was kind of pseudo offered this job. Like, Hey, if you want it, we could find work for you down here. If you want to relocate to Dallas, like you could start doing this kind of like voiceover type of like advertising, like jingle sort of work. And of course at 14 for someone who like loved like, you know, Lizzie McGuire and like Britney Spears and all the, and, well, excuse me, Stacey Rico and Rachel Lampa, I was like, Oh, I could sing and get paid for it. Like that is one step away from like my dreams come in turn being a star. And so I remember ha- kind of having that offer on the table and then coming back to, uh, I guess maybe I was 15, maybe I was at 14. I was like 15, 16, something like that. But I came back to St. Louis and I like, listen, I was distressed, like distressed to the point where I wrote in my Zanga about it. Cause of course I did <laughs> wrote in my journals about it, literally stayed up all night, multiple nights in a row, crying and praying and reading the Bible and writing things down because I wanted it. And because I wanted it, I was like, I can't have it because I want it. And that makes me selfish. And that means that I'm not doing what God wants. And it was this, I mean, just in, t- I, I mean, I melted down because I was aware that there was this thing that I wanted. And the moment I connected with something I desired in this world, I was like, Oh fuck, that's bad. That's sinful. That's evil. You can't go there. And I ended up turning the whole thing down because I was like, no, that's my plan. That's not God's plan. But the way I measured what was my plan versus God's plan was like, if I wanted it, if I liked it, if I enjoyed it, if I desired it, Mm -hmm. that meant it was mine. And that even manifested in this alternative weird fucking fear, which, um, one of my first fears that I ever like really tangible fears that I ever really had apart from just the general, like fear of hell, fear of the rapture, but a more subjective kind of personalized one was that along the line of like God's plan equals, less than great because my plan is the one that I like. And so it makes it bad, um, was this deep belief that in order for me to have like the most holy and godly marriage possible, um, God was going to force me to marry someone I didn't like, because if I actually liked that person or enjoyed them or even was attracted to them, once again, it was this like almost backwards measure of I'll know that's the wrong man for me if I actually feel attracted to him or if I actually like right, him. Right, because suffering is the thing that leads you to God's will. Yes, 100%. And, at the, you know, I, I read about that a bunch in the book, which that was even used, you know, against me to abuse me and to teach me that, like, you know, pain is the thing that you need. So, so and long before, you know, 
I started like, you know, harming myself by believing these things. I was harmed by being forced to believe these things, being spanked as a child, being prayed with before and after being told, you know, pain is what God uses to tell us, tells tell us that he loves us. Um, he disciplines those he loves. Suffering means that you have a greater inheritance, whatever the fuck it is, you know? So it, when I say that it was like, I didn't even trust myself in the world. That's what I mean. Is that like 14, 15, 16 years old, simple, simple things. Um, like just deciding, you know, what I, what I liked, what I enjoyed, you know, what friends I was going to have, what, um, how I was going to spend my time. Those things caused me a crippling amount of anxiety to the point where I was, I was, I was unwell, um, Mm -hmm. because nothing in the world or in my own mind or body or heart felt safe to trust. Yeah. One of the things that really stuck out to me in your book is when you say he, he must increase and I must decrease and decrease. I did. Um, you fucking bet I did. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was partially just in general inside my own head, but also eating disorder. Right. Like I took that really seriously. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I literally wrote in the, in the margins I wrote, I mean, goddamn, that's what I wrote. Because <laughs> I, uh, I went through a period where I would add that verse, John 3.30, to my signature. And like... <laughs> signature verse, didn't we? Yeah, yep, that was, that yeah. was a fad. That was awesome. Mm. I had the one that was about, um, like, take heart, I've overcome the world, or something like that. Mm. Yeah, that, one's, that one was one of mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I did the Tebow thing for a while. And it was Philippians four, <laughs> Philippians four thirteen, I think. And I think that was. A <laughs> oh, that, that was a big one. A lot of people had, or well, you had to, you had to make sure you weren't like that Christian who just like slummed it with John three sixteen. <laughs> That's because right. People, would be like, oh, you have you really even read your Bible? Because yeah. you're just going with the most obvious. Yeah, verse. you gotta have a scriptural so. deep cut, you know. Yes, exactly. To prove your cred. Totally. (laughs) Totally. My license plate, a personalized license plate. This should be the full, honestly, the only anecdote I need for the full measure of my devotion as an evangelical teenager. (laughs) My very first license plate on my very first car, I had personalized and it said Romans 12. Wow. That's the fucking dumbest thing I've ever done. (laughs) (laughs) It's my, and my, my dad still has it. (laughs) He still has it as like a, a shrine to my former devotion. It's like hanging out in his garage. I saw it last time I went back. I was like, this is so sad. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. Um, I want to, uh, again, shift a a little bit further into your, into your book and your work and really address what we've been touching on a lot already, which is the idea of embodiment and how these beliefs we've been talking about, have really found a way they find ways to manifest it physically um and mm-hmm. how that how that happens and what your your book touches on both the symptoms of how these things show up in people's bodies as well as how they can begin to address them as they as they sort of work through this mm-hmm. process of basically what what so many people now use the terms deconstruction and reconstruction and that sort of thing. That's become the vernacular and the sort of spaces that, that, that we inhabit, um, that folks that, that talk about this stuff all the time. Um, and that's, it's become useful as this short shorthand. So as people deconstruct, definitely as they address their life 
and their experiences in these evangelical spaces and try to work through these things. What I really appreciate is that 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 you have this really focused thing on how this affects your body and how it affects because mm. um, to get into another area like like Enneagram talk for a second, I'm a five. Mm-hmm. I'm a five, so I'm yeah. very mental oriented anyways. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And so for me, a lot of times it's all about like, okay, there's, you know, we process these beliefs and then we disassociate from these groups. Um, we disassociate from these practices in all these different ways. But where mm-hmm. I appreciate your work is like, yeah, okay, but your body went through this too. You know, yes. you weren't just like a, it's not just, you know, you're not just a a brain on a Segway or something. You actually exist as yeah. a body. A brain on a Segway. <laughs> <laughs> or one of those. I'm so sorry. As much as you guys would like to believe that you are that, you are not yeah, that. Yeah, or one you of those telepresence that. robots, you know, with the iPad as the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> what a great visual. Oh, my God. So that's what I appreciated about your book is how it, you know, it was very, it was very much something that, that speaks to something that I have trouble addressing mm-hmm. myself. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I just want you to sort of run with that and just, and, and talk about how through your training and as an embodiment coach, how that applies to people that have left evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's so, I mean, I really, really believe, um, I mean, you know that I said it in the book, I really, really believe that the most, the number one way f- forward, which is kind of inward, um, in order to heal. And I care a whole lot less about what Avenue you decide to take under this umbrella, but it is embodiment. It has to be because, it, the, the, the theology of white evangelical Christianity is just naturally disembodying. Mm-hmm. Um, it is naturally suppressive. It is naturally, I keep using the word maladaptive because there is no better word for it to just get the point across. Like it's just utterly maladaptive. And so many of us had to leave our bodies in order to survive inside of those environments, especially people of color, queer people, um, anyone who is outside of like any sort of, um, gender you know, expected and incorrect, incorrectly expected gender, gender binary. Um, there's so many of us, I mean, even just like straight up, like cisgender women, like we don't even fully fit. We kind of have to leave our bodies a little bit in order to belong um, and feel safe. So there's lots of people. And I do want to say too, like straight white men have to leave their bodies too. And they're, and if, if we're gonna, if we're gonna get mad at someone, um, I I do always want to make sure we're anchoring, like we're anchoring a lot of this conversation and like the, the men, I I have had so many straight white male clients that when I have heard them talk about the stuff that I didn't know, I wasn't hearing the same purity culture stuff they were because I heard this stuff for the girls, you know? So there were some, there's some devastating shit that was said to you guys. Oh yeah, yeah. Linda K. Klein there's got did a, a really good job of summarizing it. One one yes. thing she says, oh gosh, she says, I'm I'm sorry, I didn't mean to speak over you. Um, no, go. For um, she did she did mention the, in this really succinct way that that girls in purity culture are told that their bodies are dangerous, and boys are told mm. that their minds are. Yes, yes, absolutely, yep. And we're both. I mean, and and bo- everyone suffers. 
because not only do cisgender girls suffer under that language and cisgender boys suffer under that language, but, but any transgender individual, Mm -hmm. um, any gender fluid individual, any intersex individual is going to suffer under that language because they're, I mean, they don't even, they don't get to exist at all. So either there's something about you that's dangerous or you're not here. And like, so there is this, there is a part of me that like, may I, you know, maybe as an an aspect of some sort of like loving kindness meditation in some way, I do have to remember occasionally that men like John Piper and Jerry Falwell Jr. and Tim Keller and whoever the hell else, um, are, they are extraordinarily separated from their bodies. And they are in a lot of pain too. And they are inside of this hamster wheel of a cycle where they keep going back to the well that is full of poison to make them feel better. And they're suffering in a way that they don't even know that they're suffering. And it really sucks. It doesn't excuse the fact that they are acting like big giant pieces of shit most of the time, (laughs) but they are also suffering because the innate dogma of this belief can't really put you in a place where you get to stay with your body. And so, I mean, I really, I believe so strongly in this like whole embodiment thing that I truly like, not that I think he'd be down for it, but like, give me six months with Donald Trump. I'm serious. Like I'm serious. (laughs) Like he's just not home. He's not home. He's not with himself. And the, the evangelical Christian doctrine has an, has a vested interest in making sure that people are not with themselves mm. because if we're not with ourselves, we won't be with each other. And once we're with each other, I think we'll, we'll wake up to the reality that we don't need, we don't need anything beyond that. Um, and I, you know, hot take here, pretty sure Jesus thought the same thing, but honestly, even if he didn't, I don't really give a shit. I just happen to think he did. <laughs> so he's not alive. It doesn't fucking matter. He can't hear me. He doesn't care. But bottom line, like the reason why I think this embodiment thing is so important is because our bodies are people that we are in relationship with. Our bodies are not machines. They are not vessels. They are not, they're certainly not vending machines where we just like get to punch in some specific, I'm so sorry that you have to hear this as a five. It doesn't really work that way. You don't just get to like punch in the information and the data and the result comes out. I know, I know you do. I have a lot of clients for fives and they hate me as much as they love me. Um, it, it, our bodies are not objects or projects. Our bodies are people that we are in relationship with. And that relationship deserves to be and is supposed to be as intimate and fluent and connected and compassionate and full of, and it almost feels cheap to just use the word love because I wish there was something stronger, but like full of love and real, real love. Um, And we have been robbed of that. Um, anytime you've been inside of an authority, I mean, it's not just evangelicalism, capitalism robs us of that. Definitely. The pharmaceutical industry that is, you know, you know, in, in cahoots with like, you know, Western medicine in bed with the pharmaceutical industry, please do not hear what I'm not saying, folks. I believe in the value of medicine to help our brains do things sometimes. However, when we are overprescribed medication that, you know, the, our money is going in the pockets of billionaires and they're keeping us sick and keeping us dependent in a lot of ways, they're treating our bodies like machines. And there, a lot of times you'll, you'll encounter folks both in 
the allopathic medical uh, industry, as many as you will, instead of the more holistic medical industry, who's trying to make you think your body's your enemy. It exists there too. That's where some of my training came from. That language exists there too. There's this language all over the place. And evangelical Christianity is just one of the avenues that a lot of us got it from trying to make us believe that our body is our enemy or is some sort of machine that needs to function properly in order to be loved by us. And it's not true. And this, any sort of way inward, any sort of embodiment avenue unto embodiment is going to be so healing for people who are leaving these authoritarian fundamentalist beliefs, because you're going to remember the fact that your body is alive and you're going to remember the fact that your body is not measured by the, um, you know, incorrectly perceived goodness or badness of its thoughts or, you know, Mm. I don't like using it, but like of, you know, their thoughts of his thoughts, of her thoughts, or of their thoughts, his thoughts, or, you know, their behavior, his behavior, her behavior, like our bodies are not measured by that. And, and bottom line, our, our, everything our bodies have ever done, even from a biological scientific standpoint has been to save our lives and make us as well as possible. Every single fucking thing, everything. And we've heard far too often when, you know, in a situation of chronic illness or, um, hush pup, in a situation of, of, you know, chronic illness or some sort of like physical imbalance, we are told far too often that it's our body doing it to us rather than something that's happening to both us and our body. Mm. Um, and so there's this language exists everywhere and it's so frustrating. And so I think what embodiment does, however you find it, however it finds you, what embodiment does is it reminds you of what it feels like to come home to the person that is your body. And you begin to wake up to this thing that so many of us were we're robbed of for such a long time of how, how it feels to be able to hear the voice of our body, to hear the voice of our intuition and our instinct and get back to kind of that natural state of, of being able to measure things up against, does this make me feel well? Um, and wellness doesn't just look like me getting everything I want. That's, you know, of course what, you know, Christians would like us to think about, you know, a godless individual, like wellness, a true wellness. When you come home to your body, you actually have this experience where you remember, like, I'm not fully well if everyone around me isn't well. I'm not well if white supremacy gets to flourish, even though I'm a white person. Mm-hmm. I'm truly not fucking well. And you have to come home to your body. You have to come home to the wisdom of your body to be able to see that clearly. Um, so I do think that everything is waiting for us there. Um, and so, I mean, there's lots of ways, like whether it's something like a, a movement practice, um, you know, and again, like, this is, I recognize the prevalence of ableism that can pop up in conversations like this. Again, people who are in the embodiment world or the coaching world can get really mired in that language or like be very body negating for different sizes of bodies, um, or pathologize certain sizes over others. Like it's, this is not like, however, however you are able to come home to your body. Like, even if that is, even if your movement practice is, is something that makes you feel good, but someone else might measure as quote, not enough. Fuck them. It doesn't matter. This is about you and your body. So, um, yeah, I think that's why that's so vitally important. Um, anything that reminds us that I have a body, I'm one with my body. My body loves me. That's going to put us in the direction of healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
one other thing that I talked to you a bit about bef- sort of before this that I, I wasn't sure whether I was going to bring up, but I feel like it might be helpful to talk about for maybe people that are listening or whatever is to bring some of my experience uh, to bear. Um, it's not something I usually do, but I, I, I ran it past you via email. You thought... And you said it, it does. It does sort of align with with what the book is about. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I typically don't include my own experiences as much in in the mm-hmm. interview. Um, but since it dovetails really well with the topic of your book mm-hmm. and the entire concept of embodiment and, and all of that, um, I want to talk a little bit about how I sort of am responding to your book and mm-hmm. um, and sort of go into that. <laughs> uh, yeah. so I have epilepsy. I've, I was diagnosed sometime around when I was two. Um, basically mm-hmm. I, I have no memory of not taking a medicine mm-hmm. for it or being treated for it. Basically what that entails for me, there's hundreds of variations of epilepsy. It's not just as a, a like fall on the floor sort of, um, you know, yeah losing losing all control uh, it's different types of seizures essentially so mine sort mm-hmm. of manifested when i was a kid as uh my the right side of my mouth would pull i would um sort of if i was walking it looked like i was limping like the right mm-hmm. my right arm would flail and then my right leg would sort of trail behind me um oh, wow. <clears throat> so part of that experience um i Sort of, I was medicated at least since I was probably five. Uh, back then, you know, they would just put everybody on like phenobarbital, like barbitu, like mm, oh God. like just wow. barbiturates. Um, even <clears throat> even kids, and so you know, I was uh, on on this medicine, and then once I got to middle school, what happened was is these neurologists put me on three different drugs, sixteen pills a day. Um, and it Hmm. caused this sort of, um, this sort of shift in like, I wasn't, the side effects were actually worse than the actual seizures. Um, so that what really happened was, is that I, uh, I like playing little league, I would start to see double vision. Uh, so, you know, like trying to catch two baseballs and you don't know which one is real is a real fucking problem when you're in right field. Mm. And then, uh, I lost like my sense of coordination. Um, so like I had to stop essentially playing sports through my middle school years, which like as this kid in like small town, Indiana, um, like that's sort of where, where my friend group migrated to and I couldn't go with them. So Um. I like had to disengage from that and I became a lot more bookish, which like, that's sort of, you know, I'm very oriented towards reading and everything even to this day. And I'm just not really athletic, um, anymore. Uh, and what eventually happened is like, I was already pretty religious and one, one sort of thing that is a correlation with epilepsy is a a propensity for religiosity. Um, and so, I was. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Like some, there, there are correlations that have been studied. Um, so I and I was going to a Methodist church, but then like at both of the places I went, um, when I was when I was going in youth group age, 
were had like evangelical materials and so that was sort of the entry point for evangelical belief really mm. was um <clears throat> was within youth group in that sort of culture but what i really yeah. gravitated towards was like i i literally couldn't control my body and so mm. like i found this sense of salvation this sense of purpose in evangelicalism essentially wow um and I don't know. Like to me, it's like uh, it's been weird to to read read your book and like connect those things. Um, and like yeah. I've been exploring it personally. Like last year was like sort of a high stress year for a lot of reasons. I also tried like I was experiencing more seizures, uh, and so I tried to get get uh, more information from that. Did a like a three-day in-hospital study that was inconclusive, mm. um, had a lot of like health mm. frustrations, and I'm still sort of like beating my head against um, and like mm. trying to understand this connection towards my body, really, um, and mm. having this all like understanding that that it was actually that disconnection, that disassociation, that is sort of subconscious or not it's it's like it's not explicitly said in like evangelical teachings but it's it's the subtext of yes of you are not your own which is what which is what your title is a riff off of you know you you are your own yeah um and uh i don't really know how to to really button this up succinctly Mm -hmm. but really um you're in light of all in light of both of those experiences and how they really fed into one another in my life um and then you add in all the other things relative to what we've already talked about like purity culture and and mm-hmm. and this sense of of not building up yourself or not trusting yourself um mm-hmm. it's it's good it's giving me a new sort of frame of reference for what I've experienced, I guess. Um, wow. Wow. Hmm. What do you feel like that when you say it's given you a new frame of reference, what, what kind of new frame of reference do you feel like that is just like a, just kind of more, more to process about it, like more to think about, or do you feel like you're kind of seeing your own experience from a different point of view? Um, I'd say, I I know this is annoying, but probably a little bit of both. Both, yeah. (laughs) So like there's, I mean, uh, you know, fives tend to just infinitely process things and dwell on Mm -hmm. things forever. And that's part of my personality. Um, and the other, the other thing is, is that like, I've already, I've already sort of tried to focus um, on being aware of like the sort of self-destructive or dismissive ways I treat my physical self, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, the ways in which I don't prioritize taking care of myself, um, the yeah. ways that like, you know, I know that I have these, I'm being I'm more self-aware of the sort of self-destructive choices I make mm-hmm. with diet or with failing to prioritize exercise, you know, and like taking yeah. those, uh, 
taking those steps towards correcting those. Yeah. But, uh, do you feel like, do you feel like it ever crosses your mind in some sense? And if this is like too vulnerable of a question, like, please feel free to pass. Um, but do you feel like in some sense, does it ever cross your mind that, you know, because my body is doing things I don't understand and you've been kind of processing it from this space of my body's maybe if you have like my body's doing this to me and my body is against me and my body is like out to out to get me. And you said, you know, you even did some studies and they were inconclusive and that can feel really frustrating. Do you feel like that ever feeds into like it kind of motivates your behavior or lack of motive, lack of behavior to the point where it's like, well, why is, why is this body worth taking care of? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, in X, Y, and Z ways. Okay. Yeah. It, yeah. it definitely feels like fatalistic. Um, just in mm-hmm. that, like there was one period when I was a kid that, uh, there was like a medication that was like really working well. Um, and then it got pulled from the market and then it was like, mm-hmm. God damn it. <laughs> you know, like as a nine year old, yeah. I wouldn't have said that, but, um, uh, but nonetheless, like there is that sort of aspect of, of this. Like what's the yeah, point? Yeah, yeah. 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 And so like, yeah. And, and so in that way, you know, I've, I've sort of developed this, this sense of, well, I mean, just keep, keep doing this. Cause I mean, at least you have these mm. short term <clears throat> bursts of, uh, you know, of what is somewhat pleasing, you know, that, mm-hmm. that drive through is delicious for five seconds. Mm. You know? <laughs> right. We will definitely compensate when we don't feel pleasure or connection with ourselves or a lot of times even with other people in relationship, we will definitely find ways to compensate in, in other areas to try and seek that pleasure. Um, and that connection, that's a definitely a big thing, which again, honestly, at this point in my life, when I hear that, I'm like, yeah, cause it's our bodies trying to save our lives. Like, of course, of course our bodies are going to make us crave something sweet. If we're feeling, you know, a particular emotional disconnection, mm-hmm. um, because our bodies are trying to return us to that state of, of comfort and safety. And so that craving, actually, we have the opportunity to interpret that craving as information of our bodies telling us, well, actually, you're not like we can notice that craving. Like if we notice it and we get curious rather than like dismissing it or immediately indulging or getting really hostile and getting like, that's a big diet culture thing is you get really angry at yourself for like wanting something sweet. Like don't give in, don't give in. Why don't you just ask it a question? Mm -hmm. Like ask it like, why is it that I want this? And like, Hey body, what's going on? And our body, what you will find is our bodies because they know us so well and they love us so much. And everything that they're doing is in an effort to like save us and make us well. Well, you'll find if you, if you develop the ability to kind of interrogate that leaning and like get curious about it rather than control it or get hostile, you'll, what you'll find is that your body's trying to tell you something about, I mean, I don't know, maybe something in your person in your relationship with your partner, maybe you're feeling lonely or disconnected. And so it's not saying that you can't have the fucking chocolate. Like that's not the answer either, but it's like, have the chocolate and then maybe go talk to your partner. Like literally our bodies can do that. Like our bodies can tell us those things and reveal those things to us. And I think when I'm listening to you talk, like the, the, the most tangible felt sense of emotion that I can feel in my body and thinking about your relationship with your body is that 
like, I don't even think I want to make it even more complicated than just like saying it this way, but just like, he misses you too. Like you spent so long inside of this system where this thing was going on physically and that's over here, but also you were believing this things, these things religiously, that was over, over on this side of it, um, that was trying to explain to you why, what was going on in your body was going on. And they were just fucking wrong because of course they were, cause they're coming from this, they're coming from the totally wrong place. Like how else are they going to explain to you what's going on in your body? If they literally are coming from a place of belief that your body is riddled with sin and that it is breaking down and that it needs to be renewed. So any answer you're going to get from a system like that, um, is going to be in the exact opposite direction. It's going to make you feel or attempt to make you believe that you're, again, your body is your enemy doing something to you. Whereas what's actually happening is that whole time something's happening to you and it's happening to him too. And all that he really wants is to be able to talk with you about it and for you to get curious about what he's trying to say. And for that to be a space of love and a space of connection and intimacy where the two of you can meet each other. And it's not your fault that you were just responding to the religious indoctrination. This is why this language of religious trauma syndrome is super freeing. Cause it's like, that's not your fault. You were inside of a world you couldn't get out of, mm-hmm. but that whole time that really what you might recognize and have language for now that like, Oh, that whole time it was kind of harming me to believe that stuff about myself. And you know what? I kind of, even though you're five, it's like, oh, I kind of, kind of missed my body and I kind of want to come home to him and I kind of want to figure this out now he was missing you the whole time too. Like, it's not like he just started like just now. It's not like they were right. And he was mean all of those years. And now he's like, you know what? Kind of like this guy. I think I'll start to like, (laughs) you know, repair our relationship. Like that was his posture towards you the whole time. And it's, it's very, this is like a really deep grief. I like carry around with me. Oh, like often, like I can't even I have to like take breaks from social media around New Year's because the way that people talk about their bodies, I, I, I just cry. Like I, it's too heavy Mm -hmm. because my relationship with my body is such now that like I empathically will take that stuff on and be like, God, like I can't believe how many of us are missing ourselves and we don't even know it. Like it's really, so, so yeah, so it's, it's this, deep grief of like, you're not alone in that. There's so many people who are in that. I grieve often, you know, or occasionally at this point about how long I didn't know she missed me. Mm. Like how many years I was tangibly systematically hurting her for just existing and punishing her for doing things I couldn't understand or functioning in ways that, you know, I had lots of doctor's appointments in my, I don't really go into it in this paper as much as I do in my creation story with my clients, but lots of doctor's appointments in my twenties where they're trying to figure out what the fuck was going on with my digestive system and everything, you know, inconclusive all over the damn place. And now I know that every time I went on the mission field, I got super sick. Huh? Interesting. Um, trying to save my life, trying to make me well. But at the time, these things I don't understand, are causing this deep frustration where then I punish her for it. Mm, And I did that for so long. And occasionally I will just like, if I, if you want to get me like really emotional, like I will start one day I had this thought where I was like, I spent so much time away from you 
and punishing you for being there and then trying to move further away from you. And I hate that. And I'm just really glad I'm here now, but I hate all that time spent. And I was thinking about that. And then suddenly this thought hit me and this is going to sound really weird, but like, I remembered that one day I'm going to die and that didn't scare me, but it made me already really sad because I'm like, I I'm going to miss you so much. (laughs) Like what's going to, I don't know what happens after I die, but I know she's not coming with me. And I feel like I spent a lot of time wishing she wasn't there. And now I'm so happy she's here and I'm so happy I'm with her. And there is going to come a moment, like you can't avoid it. And at some point I'm going to have to say goodbye to her. And it's going to be, I don't know how I'm going to feel. I'm going to be dead. Some people won't feel anything, but like thinking about it now, I'm like, God, I, I, will miss you so much. And I will be so sad that I can't take you with me on to the next thing. And that tenderness, that intimacy is, it's that feeling that fuels my coaching work, that fuels conversations like these, that fueled the year and a half that it spent, you know, that I took to write this thing where I'm just like, it's that place. Like, that is what was kept from us, from so many of us, from knowing that that place exists. And not only can we live there, but we're supposed to live there. And everything we need is on the other side of that. Does that mean that you're, you might ever get an answer for what's going on with these seizures? Or they might, you might ever be, you know, let's go real charismatic with it, like miraculously healed? Maybe not. Right. Because this isn't, this isn't about ableism. Like, fuck that shit. Like, this is about us being able to live well and intimately and beautifully and comfortably um, in the relationship with our bodies exactly as they are and hopefully find some really connected space inside of that space. Yeah. Yeah. That's all really well said. I, (laughs) it's really weird. I don't have seizures at night generally, like Mm -hmm. almost never. And I've had like three while we're talking. (laughs) (laughs) So something, uh, wanted me to mention it, I think. (laughs) Yeah. That's very interesting. And again, like just get curious about that. Like don't rush to control it. Don't rush to pathologize it. Don't rush to make that bad news. Um, just get curious and just wonder like that honestly just could be, um, there's a whole school of thought when it comes to the manifestation of like sickness or or illness in the body, there's a whole school of thought within narrative medicine that like, that's actually our body's attempts at communication with us. Mm. And there's this idea that imbalance is a message. And once you receive that message, your body doesn't need to hang on to the message anymore because you all have, you figured it out. You're on the, you're on the same page and it was only there to get you on the same page. Mm. Um, and if you're curious about that, there's, um, some, some really good books by this, um, author, this doctor, Dr. Lewis Melmadrona, um, and he wrote, uh, coyote medicine and narrative medicine, and it's all about that kind of stuff. So, um, but I think at the root of that is just willing to be curious and bear very compassionate witness to what's going on in your physical body and let that be an entryway into, to further conversation. Mm, yeah. Okay. I'm going to take a deep breath. <laughs> yeah. Also, yes. Breathing is good. Yeah. <laughs> that is key. Oh, man. Okay. That's uh, a lot of self-disclosure for me. Excuse me. Yeah. You did great. You did five. You did so great. You integrated so well into eight. I'm proud of you. Oh, dear. Okay. Um, Let's 
let's um let's sort of close our conversation. <laughs> You're like, let's get out of here. No, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot away from uh pivot away from spyline on me. Uh I'm I'm feeling the heat from that spyline a little too much. Um and talk a little uh, about one of the things that that you mentioned throughout near the end of your book when you're talking about recovery and you're and you're talking about the role that a sort of healthy spirituality can have in mm. the life of someone that's gone through fundamentalist evangelicalism a an evangelical yeah. a former evangelical whatever term they they choose to have or not someone who that's had these sorts of debilitating religious experiences um yeah. i'm I know for myself that that it's really hard to approach something like that. And I also know yeah. that it's really insensitive and inappropriate to really prescribe something for someone else. Um, oh, because – and yeah. that's, that's something that has been central to the – central to creating the community on Facebook was that this mm. is no no proselytization proselytizing zone like um people are going to be affirmed in all their past outside of evangelicalism um absolutely and i i believe that is absolutely essential for any sort of uh, community building around people that have left these types of toxic environments um and if they you know if they're in a community uh, to find support now with that in mind i i also do think like there have been things that have been healing for me and that personally, when I talk again about myself, that include religious aspects. Um, and mm-hmm. other people have that in, in different ways that different than mine, but they also find this capacity to yeah. sort of claim spirituality for their own, really for mm-hmm. the first time. So, in summation, or just to sort of close out this conversation, because you've mentioned um, that this is really going to be a lifelong work, and uh, and so I know that you'll be writing and talking about this for a long time. But to close out this particular conversation, what what recommendations or or what do you do with your clients around that topic of really establishing a healthy approach to spirituality? Mm. You know, it comes up, I would say it comes up with as many clients as it doesn't come up with, Mm -hmm. um, because I meet so many people on very different spots in their journey. Um, and so there are some people that are like really ready to find, you know, to create some new meaning making, um, and find a new story system, um, or a new form of belief. And then I also meet you know, a lot of people who are just coming out of it and they're like, I cannot touch that with a 10 foot pole right now. Um, and so I talk about it as often as I don't talk about it. Um, and I think that at first early on, when I started doing this coaching work, I, I don't think it was on purpose. I don't think I was doing this intentionally. I I really don't think I was like trying to resist it. I think it just like wasn't coming up. And then when it started to come up, I noticed within myself this kind of like, is this okay? Like, is this safe? Right. Like, do I even feel comfortable saying that? Like, yeah, like 
belief on the other side of this can be great. And then I even had, I started to encounter some clients who were still Christians. They weren't evangelicals anymore. And they acknowledged how evangelicalism hurt them. And, but they were still attending Christian churches and still really loved the language of God and even loved the language of Jesus. And that was, again, kind of challenging my whole, you know, what does it look like on the other side of that belief? And I'm so grateful for that because I think one of the things that I think for anyone and everyone um, to bear in mind when it comes to what meaning making and spiritual practice can look like on the other side of fundamentalism is uh, no more fundamentalism. So that looks like what someone tells you about themselves, not only do you not get to invalidate that, but you don't need to like put this pressure on yourself or get defensive over what they found valuable. Um, and then put this pressure on yourself through way of that defense to be like, well, am I supposed to have that one too? No, not necessarily. And this is again, why like recognizing the relationship you're in with your body and getting to know your body and letting that be individualized. Like that's why that's so vital. Um, is because your information and your kind of measure of what you believe and why it matters to you has to come from a place internally rather than externally now. Um, But if that's true for you, guess what? That's true for everybody else too. So this, uh, I, what I noticed about myself is really early on post my, you know, buzzword deconstruction Mm -hmm. is that I really did swing to the, uh, and I think it was healthy for a bit of time. I totally do. But I swung to the other side of fundamentalism where what I noticed that that's funny to me now is that when I was inside of evangelicalism, I had to be like, we're the good guys and everybody out there that's not an evangelical is the bad guy right. or they're all bad guys. And then when I left, I immediately switched and I was like, evangelicals are the bad guys, all of them. Just, I, I, But I like lumped all belief, like anyone who believes in anything is like a bad guy. And look at me, this like lone ranger, you know. Uh, just like being a, being a, you know, free agent out here believing in nothing, which, you know, is laughable, (laughs) but I mean, but I had to like hang there for a bit and be like, I'm the good guy now. And people who are like me that believe in nothing, we're the good guys. And anyone who believes in anything, they're the bad guys. Um, and I now am definitely somewhere in the, in that middle space in that nuanced middle space of like, I don't know what I believe. And I'm really glad that I don't need to know. Right. And I love curiosity and I love getting to wonder and I love getting to say, I have no fucking idea. Like that feels cool. That felt really terrifying in the first like year after my deconstruction, but it feels really cool now. And so, um, in my, in my presentation then it, so, so I have to present this, um, this thesis, um, when I go up to Goddard to graduate, um, the first weekend of March and in my, in writing out what my presentation is going to be, um, I kind of narrowed it a bit more than I, you know, kind of went into in the paper um, for the sake of a 45 minute presentation and, you know, kind of talking about what the needs are on the other side. And I had four that I listed and it's reconnecting with your body. It's embodiment, finding new community, seeking spaces of assistance and support, both professional and personal. And then the fourth one that I really do believe is absolutely vital for recovery from authoritarian environments, such as evangelical Christianity is creating new meaning making and spiritual practice Mm. and, you know, a story system and belief because, um, you know, like I said, many people that I work with find their way into a version of Christianity that feels more open and free and affirming. And that is absolutely worth celebrating. And you cannot pathologize that 
it's not fair. Um, many people that I, you know, work with or meet find their way into alternative spiritual identifications, um, maybe some form of Buddhism or just like straight up mindfulness, or maybe it's something like a a yoga practice and maybe that's utterly non-religious, who knows? Um, and then many people find their way towards some kind of belief expression that largely encompasses a lack of belief, but you know, and, and that's okay too, right. but like holding that space for the, for whatever someone else finds to be okay with them. But the thing that I noticed, the thread that follows through all of those is that they all learn to finally embrace mystery across the board, whether it's like a mindfulness practice, that's your main thing, you know, a, a more kind of moderate or open version of Christianity, that's your main thing, atheism, that's your thing. What I have noticed is this new and and developed like strength of this muscle of mystery mm-hmm. that had atrophied for so many of us that now we're developing, like I said, at first it feels panic inducing and, but now it's not so much because the thing is, is that within evangelicalism, certainty is upheld as the highest possible law. Many of us were required to be certain of things that were actively harming us. And it's really difficult to break free and literally change your brain chemistry to become comfortable with the unknown and comfortable with the gray and comfortable with mystery and the loss of a former faith construct that felt certain. And that God that existed there can feel terrifying, Mm -hmm. but it's necessary to lose that. You have to. And many, 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 many people feel as though, and I know this came up on like a Twitter thread one day. Um, you know, many people feel as though, you know, when we were crying out saying, break my heart for what breaks yours, like we meant it. And that's why we left. Like many of us feel as though we followed Jesus out of evangelism. And for a long time I felt that way. And maybe I still do, but honestly, I no longer feel the need to say for sure. And that's the most freeing thing ever. Right. So Belief on the other side can look like anything, but the embrace of the unknown, the embrace of the nuance, the embrace of letting people find themselves somewhere along that spectrum, wherever they find themselves, like that's what is most vital to develop um, on the other side, regardless of what kind of what box you might check on a form about like how that specifically manifests. Mm. Yeah, that's. I, I like that a lot. Uh, I, and I, I agree like that the, the two sorts of things that, that come to mind for me are the things that remain are the, the sense, the sense of reverence and wonder and mystery, you know, that, uh, mm-hmm. that's, yeah. that is what, what propels mm-hmm. the meaning making in like the human animal, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And we'll never get away from it. Like, right. you know, learning about Joseph Campbell was so freeing because I was like, oh, we just like went a little too far, didn't we? <laughs> like, we're not going to ever be able to like totally. And there's this arrogance that exists, I think. And it's re- it's re- it is really like kind of adorable. But this arrogance that exists for a lot of like you can kind of always like smell an, an ex-evangelical who just left because they're like, I will always believe in nothing. And it's like, oh, OK. <laughs> Go read, go read a little bit of Joseph Campbell. Um, and you'll, you'll find that like, this is just in, this is who we are. This is in our species. Like it's what we've, it's one of the oldest things we've ever done is try and make sense of things that we didn't know how to make sense of. And super glad we have science now to like help us like with some of that language, but also ascribing meaning to what we can make sense of is just so innate 
and it doesn't need to be vilified. Like that really does get to be beautiful and it does get to, to matter what, what happens where, where we get into, you know, we dip into that becoming harmful is when it be, takes on an authoritarian energy to it. Mm-hmm. And we try and say, mine needs to be yours. Right. That's where it becomes problematic. Not, not celebrating. I love that you chose the words reverence and wonder. I just wrote those on my little yeah. outline. I'll probably see those <laughs> for my presentation. Like mystery and reverence and wonder, yeah. like how beautiful, like, I don't want to live apart from those things, but I also don't think I definitely don't think I need the, the white evangelical Christian God to give me those things or to develop my relationship with those things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, the one, one illustration of that that comes to mind is, uh, Reza Aslan wrote a book called God, a human history. Uh, mm, and so mm-hmm. he tracks this sort of big survey of religious belief from the Paleolithic era. Uh, I might have that era correct. It's like 35,000 years ago, um, mm, to present day wow. basically. And he talks about some of the earliest, inscriptions on on cave walls and he describes it mm-hmm. as that the faces were released from the stone like that they were <gasps> that they were there um but it was the humans that released them and then oh my god <laughs> and then he he sort of ends on this very beautiful like pantheistic sort of note of like you are god and then like um then mm. it then it sort of speaks to that that uh, religious impulse too, um, but but I'm I'm very simpatico with with all that you've just said. Like you know, it's it's definitely we find that meaning, we make that meaning, uh, and it's it's who we are, and and we'll, we'll if we're lucky, we'll find our way back to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and we don't need to really concern ourselves with anything beyond that. I actually have one of my favorite quotes of all time. Um, let me see if I can find it again. It's in my little notes. Oh wait, there's a search feature on here. Duh. Um, I, what I will say before I read this is that I've, I have never, I found this on Tumblr once like four or five years ago. And when I couldn't remember it, when I hadn't gone back in my Tumblr to like find it again, I tried to, to Google it and I couldn't find it. So Disclaimer here is I have no idea if this is is real, (laughs) if Oliver Sacks actually said this, but I'm going to go with the, you know, believing that he did because it's beautiful. And I remember when I first found it, like, you know, four years ago, it just like it landed and I was like, that's it. That's totally it. Like, that's the language I've been searching for this whole time. Mm -hmm. Um, And he says, whether I'm lucky or unlucky in not feeling that particular need strongly, and also being so delighted and enchanted, enraptured, ecstatic in a way by the natural world that I don't feel a craving for any other. I think that the existing world is extremely wonderful and complete. Mm. Mm. That's awesome. Just this idea of like, I don't need anything beyond this. Like, don't try and sell it to me because this is enough. This is, I love that he's like, I'm enchanted and delighted and enraptured in an ecstatic way by this world and everything here that it feels cheap that you're trying to sell me on a different one or that there would be something beyond this. Like, this is it. This is enough. Mm. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any better note to end on than that. <laughs> I mean, Oliver Sacks. Perfect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jamie, I've really loved this conversation. Where can people find your work elsewhere online? Where can they look you up and, and find more out about you and your work? 
Yeah, I have also really loved this conversation. Thank you. I, as a side note, I was thinking about the fact that the last time we spoke, or like the first time we spoke via this interview format mm-hmm. for Exvangelical, was just three months, four months before I started writing this thesis. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. And so that was, it was April of 2017 mm, when we yeah. uh, talked that first time. So there's so much that was different. So I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, it's crazy for me to think about the fact that I'm like, that existed. This thing existed in me, but I didn't know it yet. Like I didn't know what it was going to be. And it's yeah. really cute. And I wonder if that's how people feel when they look at their kids. That's really cute. Um, anyway, yes. So you can find me. Um, on all of the social medias, um, social media medias. Yeah, we'll go with that. Um, just Jamie Lee Finch on all of them, or just at Jamie Lee Finch, um, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If there are other ones beyond that, I don't use them because why I'm 30, I'm over it. So, um, then also my website is jamieleefinch.com. Um, and that is the, right now the one and only place where you will be able to find and purchase both this ebook and audiobook. I do not understand how fancier avenues like getting things via Amazon or um, what is Audible or the, I don't know how that shit works. And <laughs> I don't really think I'm, I don't know, maybe someday, maybe someday soon. But right now, as far as if you want it in your hands as quickly as possible, um, this senior study, this thesis is is being turned into an, an ebook. Um, and I'm currently reading through it for an audiobook as well. So you'll be able to purchase those from jamieleefinch.com beginning, um, March 4th, 2019. Mm-hmm. They'll all be available for purchase on there. Um, and one of the things I am doing in that first about six weeks that it's going to be up and both of those things will be available for purchase. I'm going to be donating half of everything I make from those sales directly back to Goddard College. Um, they're in a massive fundraising effort right now, like I mentioned before, where um, years and years ago they had a president who just was not very fiscally minded, kind of ran them into the ground. They've got they had someone who kind of restabilized them, and when he knew his job was done, he you know he stepped down, and they've got a new president who's there to try and kind of get them back on track because if they don't make you know, if they, if they aren't able to, to show that they've raised a certain amount of money by a certain point in time, um, it, there's, there's some risky things that could happen with that school being able to continue mm. doing what they're doing. And I would not have anything I have right now, if not for that institution and the fact that they are equal parts academic as they are activist, they are progressive, they are open, they are powerful. And that school is vitally important and it needs to stay, um, so yes, yeah, so if if people want this and they want it quickly, all that's even better because I can you know hopefully get some money over to them for for that. So um, yes, yeah, so the the book is called "You Are Not Your Own: um, A Reckoning with the Religious Trauma oh, of actually, Evangelical." You are your own, right? Oh my gosh, did I just say that? <laughs> wow, Blake, edit it out. No, I'm kidding. It's mine. Wow. I mean, see, sometimes the the religious yeah, trauma and, just comes up. Just, Thanks. It's, it's in there. <laughs> it is. I know, right? I'll go have this conversation with my body later. Um, yes, it is called You Are Your Own Because You Are um, A Reckoning with the Religious Trauma of Evangelical Christianity. And I'm very excited for everyone to be able to have it. Yeah. Um, oh, and then also, final note too if anyone is curious about 
the work that I do as a coach, um, with my, you know, sexuality and embodiment coaching, um, I am, you know, kind of, uh, I'm working, I have a wait list. I'm working off of that wait list. Um, and you can find that also available on my website. Um, hopefully soon I'll be able to start creating some content like newsletter and some, some like passive content for people to have, um, while folks are waiting on said wait list. But for now, at the very least, you'll be able to have this, this book yeah. and I'm very excited about yeah, that. Yeah. I very much enjoyed it and it'll be great to, uh, to let people know about it through this interview and through your site. So Jamie, thanks. Thanks, thanks again so much for, for coming on and talking thanks. again. Like, this was wonderful. I loved it. And I just thank you so much for the space that you've created for so many people in this world. I, I've talked with clients so many times about the fact that when I first started deconstructing, um, I'm just, I really wonder what could have been different or how different it could have felt had I, had I had a space like ex-evangelical, mm. um, and, and the other spaces that have branched out because of the existence of ex-evangelical back then, and just how much less alone I would have felt. Mm. Um, so I can tell you like what you're doing in, I mean, in those four things I listed, one of those is, you know, a new, a new space of communal belonging and you have helped to create that for so many people and it's really important. So thank you. Wow. Thank you so much. That, that really means a lot. Yeah. Glad. <laughs> Thanks again. Like. <laughs>